<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. What a big day we have today. I want to get into this question of will our next president be America's last president? And there's a and this isn't just the usual rant about, oh, my God, the fascists are coming. There's something going on in American politics that almost nobody's talking about. And I want to lay it out for you. If the alliance of neoliberal billionaires and authoritarian Republican politicians basically succeed at blocking Biden's progressive programs and drag us or drag us into a recession, we are really and truly screwed. I'll get to that in a minute. Mike Rothschild is with us. He's got a new book out. It's called The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. And he will be with us in a Conversations with Great Minds piece. So that's what's coming up. And let me just, frankly, just dive right into it. Will our next president be America's last president? What I'm looking at here, and I think Mitch McConnell's manipulation of the debt ceiling and, and uh, you know, you've got two Democratic senators taking big bucks from billionaires and, and a handful of uh, Democrats in the House of Representatives taking, you know, money from big pharma and whatnot, uh, trying to blow up uh, Joe Biden's Build Back Better initiative. And it illustrates this largely unacknowledged crisis point in American politics. And that is that since the end of the 1800s, you know, basically since, um, well, uh, arguably since the 1870s, but there's a whole lot of nuance if you try to apply the words progressive or conservative to that era after the Civil War before 1900, because there was so much going on with collapsing uh, reconstruction and all that kind of stuff. So just starting in 1900, looking at the last 121 years, America has gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth at the federal level between what you could call conservative regimes or administrations or eras actually is the best word because this is independent of party to a large extent between progressive and conservative eras. And that swing between the two is literally brought about by swing voters. This is why we call them swing voters. They're the people who have weak party affiliations. Uh, they, when they combine with either the Democratic or Republican Party, either the conservative or, or progressive movements, they shift kind of the Overton window. They shift the norm in America from progressive to conservative and then back to progressive and then back to conservative. And if we were, and, and I would posit that with Biden's Build Back Better plan and all the progressive uh, reforms that uh, have passed the House of Representatives that are bottled up in the Senate right now, that we are now back in a progressive era. And in fact, I would argue that uh, Trump's election in 2016 reflected a desire on the part of people to get back to that. And I'll get back to that in just a second. But just to, to give you a little history on how this has played out, the first flip starting in 1900 or 1901 when, when McKinley was assassinated and Teddy Roosevelt became president, that was the beginning of the progressive flip. And Teddy Roosevelt, you know, on race, he invited Booker T. Washington to the White House, which made the Southern racists go crazy, but, you know, he did it. Uh, he took on the nation's largest monopolies, which is why they came to call him the trust buster, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, fan. Now, he's a Republican, but he was a progressive. 
Uh, he took on the railroads. He regulated their prices. He put 230 million acres of land into 150 national forests, our, our first five national parks, 18 new national monuments. That lasted until 1920. In 1920, we flipped conservative. Warren Harding came in with his uh, return to normalcy and more business and government, less government in business. And for that period from 1920 to 1932, we were in a conservative area, era. The conservatives, though, crashed the stock market in 29, and that flipped us back into a progressive era with the election in 1932 of Franklin Roosevelt. And that progressive era that started in 32 lasted all the way up until 1980. It was the longest era of, uh, frankly, I think, in the history of the United States. It, it included de uh, Democratic presidents like, you know, obviously like FDR and Truman and John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, but it also, and, and, and Jimmy Carter, but it also included two Republican presidents, Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon. And that progressive flip gave us Social Security, unemployment insurance, the minimum wage, Medicare, Medicaid, huge government-funded infrastructure programs like the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Eisenhower Highway System, the Hoover Dam, things like that. And this was, these were embraced by Republicans as well as Democrats, maybe a, a little slow, more slowly, but that was the progressive era, 1932 to 1980. And then Reagan came in in 1980 with basically the same things that, that, uh, that Harding had used in 1920 and flipped us back conservative. And we have been conservative since 1980. We've been in, a, in an era of austerity. We have not undertaken these kind of major projects like Lyndon Johnson did or, or Franklin Roosevelt did, or frankly, Dwight Eisenhower did with the, with the interstate highway system. We have not done that in 40 years. And so thus the pressure has built up for us to flip back to a progressive era. And like I said, this, I think that the reason why Trump's election was a signal that this was the case was because he ran on a progressive platform people constantly forget. He said he was going to raise the taxes of rich people so much that all his rich friends would hate him. He said that he was going to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. by getting money out of politics. And he said he was going to end the neoliberal free trade era, which was ushered in by Ronald Reagan. He was going to end that and bring our factories. We, we have lost over 60,000 factories since 1980 in the United States. Uh, arguably 10 to 20 million jobs. I was riffing about this a little bit yesterday, as you'll recall. Um, and that he was going to bring back all those jobs and bring those factories back. Now, all three of those things that Donald Trump campaigned on, those three big things, they were all lies. He did not do any of those things. He put some tariffs on Chinese goods as kind of a, you know, yeah, I'll throw a bone to the dog, but, you know, it, it really had no consequence. But this time we've got a whole new problem with this transition from a conservative era to a progressive era in this year, 19, uh, 2021. And that problem is a combination of two really tectonic political forces that America has never seen before, arguably outside of the Civil War era. And I don't want to go back to the analogies there, so just, just you know, to, to continue. The first of those two tectonic forces is what's called neoliberalism. This, this neoliberalism was a word that was invented at a meeting in Mont Pelerin, uh, on Mount Pelerin in, in Switzerland back in 1947 um, that was attended by uh, Milton Friedman, uh, F.A. Hayek, and Ludwig von Mises. And it, it was a brand new thing. It went beyond just what we traditionally call conservative. It basically made the argument that government really shouldn't be doing much of anything that, you know, this, I mean, this went way beyond Richard Nixon and, and Dwight Eisenhower. The neoliberal idea was arguably the libertarian idea that government should just run the army and the police. So Reagan put neoliberalism into effect and Bush and Clinton and Bush and Obama all kept it in effect. And what it did was it gutted the American middle class. As a result of these neoliberal policies, we saw union membership go from over 30% down to less than 6% right now in the private workforce. Uh, you know, we saw poverty explode. We saw the middle class drop below 50% for the first time since the 1950s, back about a decade ago. The majority of Americans are no longer middle class, working class Americans. The majority of Americans are now the working poor, more than 50%. 
This is all the consequence. And, and our, and our, for 40 years, our infrastructure has just been di disintegrating. And this is the consequence of neoliberalism. And this is one of the reasons why, why people actually voted for Trump and why they voted for Joe Biden, because both promised to break neoliberalism. So there's that. That was the first of these two giant forces. The second of the two giant forces was a Viktor Orban-style neo-fascist insurgency that Trump brought into the White House with people like Steve Bannon and Mike Flynn and uh, Stephen Miller. And that, has, that is now manifesting itself all across the country with these uh, you know, violent turnouts at school board meetings, death threats to election workers, you know, trashing vaccine testing places and just all this stuff that's going on, this, this kind of, you know, tough bully stuff. This, these are signs of fascism, what I'm calling neo-fascism, this new fascism that Viktor Orban has really pioneered. And so the neoliberals and the fascists and the neo-fascists have kind of made common cause with the billionaire class, the right-wing billionaires, the giant corporations and the Republican Party. And as a result, they're, they're trying to frustrate America's desire to get back to a progressive agenda. The majority of Americans like everything. I mean, polling literally shows more than 50% of Americans want everything that is in Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda. It's a progressive agenda. Americans want, okay, you know, we tried conservatism for 40 years. It didn't work. Let's go back to progressivism. We've been through this cycle over and over and over again. But if Biden can't get this passed, then those swing Americans are going to say, you know, the Democrats are just, they don't have enough guts to take on Mitch McConnell. They're not, they can't, they can't uh, get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema under control and, uh, you know, make anything happen. Screw the Democrats. I'm going to go back with the Republicans. And you're going to have a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and a Republican president in 2024. And those people are now actively embracing this Orban Hungary style of neo-fascism. Which means that if Mitch McConnell is successful and Joe Biden fails, in my opinion, our next president will probably be our last president. This is the Tom Hartman program. I realize there's a, you know, there's a certain complexity to my argument that makes it, it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, but I think this is really what's going on right now. This is really the news of the day. Dick Durbin is out talking about this. The, he is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. His number two, the Republican, the senior Republican on the committee is Chuck Grassley, who is with Donald Trump at a Trump rally. Yes, that's Chuck Grassley. He's I think he's losing it. I, I just, he keeps saying things that have no actual connection to reality. But in any case, the Judiciary Committee has laid out the fact that there were actually two concurrent efforts to overthrow the 2020 election happening in Trump world. The first was this effort to stop the count to get Mike Pence to uh, decertify the election or refuse to certify the election throw it into the House of Representatives, where the 26 Republican states, if, if uh, the Electoral College vote goes into the House, each state's delegation has one vote. You've got 26 states where the delegations are controlled by Republicans, 24 states where they're Democrats, actually it's 23 where it's Democrats, and it's kind of a split. And the result of that would be that the Electoral College vote would have gone for Donald Trump, and he'd be our president right now. So they were trying to do that. They were trying to get Mike Pence to do that. Pence wouldn't go along with it at the very end. But then there was a second effort, which was being run out of the Department of Justice that we're just now learning about, where Bill Barr ordered even, you know, this was on November 9th, right? Uh, the day of, the day before, the day after the election. I'm not sure what election day was last year, but right around that time where he ordered the Department of Justice to open investigations in the states. Was there fraud in Arizona? Was there fraud in Pennsylvania? Was there fraud in Michigan? In the states that Trump lost by narrow margins in the hopes that they could convince those state legislators that they had a problem in their state and so they would not submit their Biden ballot slate of electors to the Electoral College and thus Trump could win the Electoral College vote that way. 
Turns out this battle royale inside the Department of Justice about whether they were going to make this happen, which is just breathtaking and mind-boggling that Trump had two separate coup attempts operating at the same time. And apropos of my first rant, what that means is that in 2024, whoever the Republican nominee is, they now have two strategies that they can employ to steal the election. Teresa in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Teresa, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Hi, Tom. Hey, great analysis. I just want to add that one thing I really, these days, I do not call Republicans conservatives. I call them either Republicans, because that's a, you know, a factual thing, mm-hmm. or I call them corporatists, mm-hmm. um, because they're really, they're really not conservative. I mean, you know, I'm conservative when it comes to big government and my body, and I'm conservative when it comes to big government and the military spending. But today's Republicans are not conservatives. They just like big government when it works for them and, you know, small government for the little people. So I just say I love your rant, but I would just or like um, conservative Democrats. No, they're corporatist Democrats. They're not conservatives. Yeah. In principle, I completely agree with you, Teresa. The reason that I'm using the word conservative is because I had to define these eras of American history, 1901 to 1920, 1920 to 1932. 1932 to 1980, 1980 to today. And conservative and progressive were the labels that politicians at the time used. They were the labels that the media at the time used. And they're the labels that are still largely used. Also, you know, the problem that, you know, of this whole thing being blown up, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, and this is where I, I would double down on what you're saying, Teresa, and people like Kurt Schrader here in Oregon and Scott Peters in California and whatnot, you know, these uh, yeah. Democrats who are voting against Biden's agenda they are definitely corporatists because they're taking their money from giant corporations, in this case, pharma, you know, the pharmaceutical yeah, companies. Yeah. And I, I really, it really gets me when people call them moderate Dems, you know, because moderate is such a nice connotes, you know, just really all wonderful things. And what's that as opposed to extreme Dems? You know, no, they're, they're corporatist Dems. They're not exactly. moderate. <laughs> exactly. Or if we're going to continue using the language of conservative and progressive, you could call them conservative Democrats. But moderate typically, historically, has meant the politicians who go along with what more than half of America wants. Yep. And that is the 94 or 96%, depending on how you're doing your math, of all of the elected Democrats in Washington, D.C., who want to see Joe Biden's agenda successfully put into law. And, yeah. and then people like Schrader and Peters and Manchin and Cinema. I would say, they, you know, no, they're not moderate. It's obscene to call them moderates. They, they are conservatives or they are corporatists. And yep. in, increasingly, I think those words, as you point out, Teresa, correctly, I think those words are interchangeable. The challenge is getting the media to use these. I mean, I, I listening to NPR this morning, they were referring to moderate Democrats. And again, I'm yelling at my radio. <laughs> There's not a moderate. Yes, yes me too. <laughs> it's like, you know, moderates are trying to moderate things. No, 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 they're not trying to moderate things. They're trying to maintain this massive neoliberal ripoff of the American working class, you know, to, to the point that the average American family pays $5,000 a year more than the families of any other developed country. Uh, because of all the monopolies and because of the healthcare ripoffs in this country. Yep. Teresa, I got to run, but thank you. Thank you for the call. Well said. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. 
Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's do a a deep dive into QAnon in our Conversations with Great Minds series. Uh, Today, Mike Rothschild is with us, the investigative journalist focusing on the intersection of internet culture, politics, and conspiracy theories, specifically QAnon. He's the author of the new book, The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. Um, he's uh, also contributed to the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, CNN, MSNBC, the BBC, and elsewhere. Mike, uh, welcome to the program. If, if we could, oh, and also uh, Rothschild MD is the uh, Twitter handle for you. Um, if we could start at the beginning, uh, you know, your first chapter is learn to read the map, the basics of uh, of QAnon. What are the basics of QAnon? Sure, and thank you for having me on the show. Uh, the the basics of QAnon is actually a more complicated question than you might think, because QAnon now is a very different movement than QAnon in the very beginning. But we'll start at the very beginning and then we'll go from there. So QAnon at the very beginning was a cult-like conspiracy movement that holds that a secret military intelligence team was working with President Trump to leak cryptic clues to an upcoming purge of the deep state, the Democratic Party, and the business elite that would be carried out with a clutch of hundreds of thousands of sealed indictments that would be unsealed in a public spectacle with the president tweeting, my fellow Americans, the storm is upon us. And at that point, uh, thousands of patriotic teams would go into action, arresting all of these people, trying them under military tribunal rules and either executing them in the field or shipping them off to Guantanamo Bay. Shames, shades of the have, French Revolution. I mean, it's... To, oh, sure. Shades of, of a thousand different conspiracies and mass movements and sort of populist uprisings where the, the rabble would pick up arms against the people that had been oppressing them and we would have utopia and freedom and peace and light for everybody at the end of it. Right. So uh, that's where it started. Where is it now? Right now, as you know, uh, hopefully you know, uh, Donald Trump is not the president anymore. And Joe Biden is the president. I believe now. I know Presumably, that. <laughs> yes, yes. You would be surprised at who doesn't. Um, the, the presumption is that Joe Biden will not arrest himself as a part of the deep state. So the QAnon movement now is really refocused not on Trump uh, unleashing this purge, but on being restored to office through any number of court cases, lawsuits, uh, constitutional Hail Marys. And now this idea that he will be reinstated because there was so much electoral fraud that the the uh, state legislatures will have no choice but to decertify the electoral votes that they certified. And that through some sort of magic that no one can quite articulate, Donald Trump will be restored to office or he's been president this whole time. It really depends on who you talk to in this movement, sort of how deep down the rabbit hole they go of is Trump secretly still the president. Will he be the president again? But at the end of it, Trump is back in office, back where he belongs. And then we'll just get right back to the business of waiting for the great purge to come. We're talking with Mike Rothschild, the author of The Storm is Upon Us, this new book about QAnon that's just absolutely mind-boggling. Mike, back in the, in the I mean, this is a long time ago, the, the story I'm going to tell you, back in the 60s, in 1968, I think it was, or 67 maybe even, I was, uh, maybe 69, I was working in news at WITL in Lansing, Michigan, and the uh, 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 state policeman, a federal uh, guy wearing a suit with a badge, Mm-hmm. And a local cop showed up at the radio station and took me and, and uh, Bob Brakeman, the, the, uh, our uh, uh, news uh, 
you know, the, the head news guy, whatever he, he was, his title was, aside and said, there's this group down the road here in Lansing, Michigan, uh, that we're going to raid. We're going to have a huge raid on this, on this compound. And these people, we're, we're charging them with tax evasion. These people do not believe that uh, America is legitimate. Uh, they believe that they are sovereign citizens, independent of the United States. Therefore, they don't have to pay taxes. And we would appreciate it if you did not discuss this on the news, if it, if it, if it breaks through. Um, because we're trying to keep this on the down low, uh, you know, sort of thing. And, and Bob and I had a big debate about whether we should respect their request or not. And uh, we ultimately did. It wasn't my choice. But um, that was in the 60s, right? I mean, that was a long friggin' time ago. And it sounds to me like this is kind of an extension of that weird ideology. And, and I'm seeing an enormous amount of crossover between the, the, the sovereign citizen movement which you know has dates back to the arguably to the 1800s, um, and 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 QAnon. Yeah, and one of the things that you you really realize, and what I wanted to get across with writing the book, is that while QAnon seems very new and very sort of of the 21st century zeitgeist, all of the component parts of it have been around for a long time. You go with everything from the blood libel of the the, the 1100s to, uh, you know, the satanic panic, to scams of the 90s and of the aughts, the John Birch Society, the, the tax protester movement, all of this stuff was sort of recombined to form QAnon. But when you take that social media-friendly sheen off of it, you really see the component parts, and it's very easy to lay those things bare. So you really do have an enormous amount of crossover in these anti-government movements, these anti-tax movements, the, the anti-expertise movement that has really taken over the Republican Party. But, you know, all of that stuff it is very old and, and taken on its own. It can be sort of debunked. But QAnon combines all of it. And when you debunk one part of it, another part of it just pops up. And at some point, you just get tired of it and you move on to the next thing. So at the, at the beginning, the, where QAnon in its modern incarnation, you know, first emerged early in the Trump. This, this was early in the Trump presidency. Am I correct? Yeah. And uh, tell us about, you know, the, the message board that it came out of and, and what's the deal with the pig farmer in the Philippines? <laughs> so that's, those are great questions. So QAnon's genesis really came from this remark that President Trump made in October of 2017. It was October 5th, so just its fourth anniversary was just a couple days ago. Whereas you were reading about, he's in this room with these military officers and their spouses, and he said, this could be the calm before the storm. Nobody has any idea what he's talking about. It's one of those things he just says. It doesn't mean anything. He never gave it a second thought. But Somebody on this board, 4chan, really liked how that sounded and really liked the response that that got. So 4chan had been the home of any number of you know, everything from harmless Internet memes, you know, things like Rick rolling uh, to to really toxic stuff, really racist stuff, really anti-Semitic stuff. And in particular on the 4chan board called Poll, P-O-L. And I, I do not recommend anybody ever go there for any reason. You, you do not need to experience these things firsthand. So there was a tradition on this board poll of anonymous users pretending to be important. So you had uh, FBI Anon, you had White House Insider Anon, you had an Anon who called himself Highway Patrolman, who claimed to be intercepting convoys full of trafficked children. I mean, just nonsense. So on or about uh, October, uh, October 27th, uh, 2017, somebody posts that, Hillary Clinton is going to be arrested. You know, just just whatever. So just, was, it, was this all? If I can interrupt you, were yeah. these were these characters in these posts being done like satire, like pastiche, where everybody understood with a wink and a nod that this was just hey, we're just having fun here. You know, it's always hard to tell who knows what's fake and what's real in places like 4chan. But right. my general understanding is that everybody knew that this was a goof. Nobody, nobody took this seriously. It was just a game to play along with. And whoever did it really well could do it for a long time before they got figured out. But what Q did, and they weren't even calling themselves Q in the beginning, was Q focused their story around not the sort of chicanery in the FBI or the White House, but around the one event that conservatives have been yearning for for the last three decades which is Hillary Clinton to get what's coming to her. So the first post of what we now know as Q was Hillary Clinton will be arrested on November 3rd or whatever the day is at 1045 a.m. 
Uh, extradition already in motion. Her passport has been flagged. Look to see the Marines and National Guard in your streets to know that this has happened. So right away, you have not only three decades of wish fulfillment in Hillary Clinton being arrested, but concrete signs that something amazing is about to happen, something gigantic. And of course, this is all tied in with this conspiracy theory that had been going around about an Antifa uprising that was going to happen on November 4th. So you already had all of these people really charged up that Antifa members were going to suddenly riot and go door to door, you know, arresting or, or kidnapping or killing Trump supporters and that the Marines were going to be called up to stop it. And all of these things combined to form this very compelling, very well-told, very thrilling story that really seemed to be out of the pages of a Tom Clancy book, this you know, sort of national upheaval. And these people had an inside seat to it. It's like crowdsourcing a, uh, a thriller, a, a novel of some kind. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty amazing. We'll continue this conversation. Mike, Mike Rothschild is our guest in Conversations with Great Minds, a full-hour interview. Uh, he is an investigative journalist focusing on the intersection of Internet culture, politics, and conspiracy theories. His current book, The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. So, Mike, the calm before the storm, have we kind of covered how QAnon started? How, how did, I'm interested in this transition from being this obscure, weird, kind of semi-pastiche uh, thing on, you know, on a message board to suddenly a movement that has millions of people in the United States? Yeah, so what happens with these first couple of posts is the, the people on 4chan who fancy themselves, you know, very savvy and very cutting edge, they don't think it's anything. They're making fun of it. But the, the Q poster keeps going and they keep adding more and more details to the conspiracy that they are concocting. And one of the things you learn as you research conspiracy theories is the more details that get added on and the more outlandish those details are, the more believable the conspiracy becomes. Correct. So as Q continues to load this thing up with rhetorical questions and dates and times and events, people start to get into it. People start to really buy into this story, partially because it's just really interesting and, and sort of fun to watch unfold, but also because it really dovetails with the things they already believe, that Hillary Clinton and George Soros and Barack Obama are irredeemably corrupt, and Trump is going to be the guy to take them down. He's the outsider who doesn't need that Washington swamp, and he is going to stop this. So Q continues to gain popularity as we go into late November of 2017. And what happens is you start to see the first big promoters show up, people who start decoding these drops, trying to figure out what they really mean, and start to evangelize the movement to other people. So you see very early on these very, very low-level right-wing content creators, people I talk about in the book, people like Tracy Beans, Baruch the Scribe, you know, people you would never have heard of before, you who would maybe get a thousand views for a YouTube video they would do. Suddenly they start making content about QAnon, and they're talking about, well, is it real? This seems legit. This is really cool. Let's see what happens. These videos really start to take off. So by On December, YouTube. there is already a, a nascent industry of QAnon promoters. And then in December of 2017, two of these people go on Infowars. And this is really what causes the movement to jump from just the swamps of 4chan to the uh, normie spaces of Reddit and Twitter. They say this is an intelligence operation that's going to change the world. We're the first people here. We're decoding these messages, but we need your help. We need the help of people in the military and in intelligence, people who are skilled in cryptography. And suddenly all of these, these Infowars watching fake news spreading boomers who love Trump are like, oh, this is cool. I can get in on this. I can help make this happen. I can play a part in bringing these horrible people to justice. And at that point, QAnon is just out of the bottle and it is spreading. So the, the, the Alex Jones was the guy who supercharged this thing and, and pushed it into the uh, into the in, in, into the larger world. Yeah, it's really the Infowars empire. You know, Alex Jones and Jerome Corsi, the, the sort of right wing celebrities. You yeah, know, I know Jerome Corsi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Corsi was was beloved in those circles for writing the first big book, questioning where Barack Obama was really born. And he gets in on decoding these threads. 
pumping out tweets. This thing becomes legitimate because of these people. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jerry Corsi used to come on this program and debate me all the time. Um, <laughs> and, and Alex Jones and I have actually done a couple of shows together. I mean, this is like okay. 10, 15 years ago when yeah. it wasn't considered so dangerous, frankly. Right. It was just weird. We are talking with Mike Rothschild, the author of this extraordinary new book, The Storm is Upon Us, how QAnon became a movement, a cult, and a conspiracy of everything. So QAnon starts out on, on 4chan. It migrates to uh, Alex Jones. Alex Jones blows it out. Suddenly now it's on social media. It's on Twitter. It's on Facebook. It's, it's, uh, and, and, uh, and it's beginning to make its way into the larger right-wing media sphere does it show up on Fox News? Does it? Does it? Where? Where and when does it break through? And at what point does the media start saying, "Hey, wait a minute"? So all of this is happening very quietly. Uh, for the first maybe eight or nine months of QAnon, there are very few people in the mainstream media taking this seriously. And and at face value, why would you? It's just more weird internet stuff uh, with a president whose sort of existence revolves around weird internet stuff. But at this point, it, it really is starting to gain followers. It's starting to gain a monetization industry. A lot of the major gurus and content creators in the QAnon world pop up here, and they're finding enormous success. You got uh, one of the cases I write about in the book is this guy who goes by Praying Medic, and he's this divine healer who gets dreams from God that tell him what's going to happen. This is a guy who is making sort of divine healing videos. He's getting a couple thousand views. He starts talking about QAnon. All of a sudden, he's got half a million Twitter followers. His YouTube videos are getting six-figure views. He's got books coming out. He's got a podcast. Money is coming in hand over fist. All of this is happening while the media is just not getting what this is and really writing it off. And we're still at that point where we think, well, if we don't pay attention to it, if we don't amplify it, it'll just go away. Of course, now we know that that's not how these things work. If we don't pay attention to them, they just grow with nobody watching them. So Q's big breakthrough in the mainstream media is August of 2018. And it's, I think it's August 1st. And Trump has a rally in Tampa. That rally is absolutely swamped by QAnon believers, hmm. people wearing QAnon T-shirts, holding up QAnon signs, shouting QAnon slogans. And at, at, at that point, you've got pretty much every major media outlet going, oh, wait a minute, we got to talk about this. So every, everybody and their mother has an explainer on what is QAnon, who is QAnon, who are these people, what is this, do we have to take this seriously? And at that point, it's got a huge following, it's got a mythology, it's got a grifting industry, the president is already retweeting QAnon followers, he's not directly using QAnon terminology, but he's throwing out red meat to these people who believe that he is not just a great president, but in, an infallible messiah who can do no wrong and is running this secret military operation that's going to save the world. And this is all happening while people are just not paying attention to it. So at what point, well, how, how many Americans at that point in 2018 were, uh, you know, in the cult, shall we say, and how many are now? It's very hard to pin down any kind of numbers with QAnon, because when you start asking questions that are specifically about the movement, you know, do you believe QAnon is real? Do you read Q drops? People go, I'm not one of those crazy people. I, I don't I don't believe in QAnon, but I think that there's a deep state. And I think that uh, Donald Trump, you know, actually got six million more votes than he says he got, you know, that there's child trafficking, that George Soros runs the world. All of those are QAnon tenets, the core of QAnon. So they don't identify as QAnon believers. They just believe everything that QAnon is already saying, and they probably already did before that. Hmm. The biggest demographic in QAnon, you know, it's not white people, it's not you know men versus women. It's people who are already conspiracy believers. These are already people who were 9/11 truthers, already people who were uh, Barack Obama birth certificate truthers, Trump Spygate. You know, any number of conspiracy theories that have been said to them over decades by right-wing media, these people were already all in on this stuff. QAnon is just one more conspiracy in a ladder of conspiracy theories. That's, it's absolutely remarkable. And so many of them are so ancient. Uh, Mike Rothschild, The Storm is Upon Us is the book, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. It's absolutely fascinating.
Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Mike Rothschild is on the line with us, our conversations with great minds today. He's got a new book out called The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. And Mike, I want to jump ahead and then kind of jump back. January 6th, what role did QAnon play in the insurrection at the Capitol building? An enormous role. I think it is arguable that if QAnon didn't exist, the Capitol insurrection may not have happened or may not have been as well populated. Uh, the, The two are completely intertwined. For all of 2020, the QAnon persona uh, which was by that point uh, posting on a different board called 8kun, which is set up very similarly to 4chan, was beating a drum for a singular narrative that Donald Trump was the greatest president in the history of the universe, that there was absolutely no possibility that he could lose an election to the decrepit, basement-bound husk of Joe Biden, and that the only way that Biden could appear to win is if there was massive systemic fraud. Well, how do you have massive systemic fraud? You get people to mail in their votes, and you get rid of the ones for Trump, and you duplicate the ones for Biden. So the whole pandemic, all of that was done to push mail-in voting to prop up the the basement-bound husk of Joe Biden to give him a chance against the heroic, uh, Adonis-like Donald Trump. So for a year, Q is telling their acolytes, the election's going to be stolen. There's going to be massive fraud. Here's what to look for. Here's what they're doing. Here's how they're doing it. This is what's going to happen. Now, that's not happening in a vacuum because Donald Trump and his inner circle are saying the exact same things. They're talking about how the mail-in ballots are going to be fraudulent, how there's going to be middle-of-the-night ballot dumps, how uh, there's no possible way that Biden could win, that Biden is hiding, he's sleepy, he's barely alive, he's barely awake, all of these things. Setting their followers up for the inevitable loss of Donald Trump, because, of course, as we know, the polling wasn't really that close. Joe Biden was always beating Trump in general election polling. Trump was historically unpopular. The economy was under siege. The pandemic was everywhere. These are not the this is not the recipe for a reelection. So Biden's win is really not that outlandish. But they had to come up with a reason why the election would be stolen from Trump. And they came up with this incredibly complicated fraud scheme that they were going to have to appear to lose in order to expose the fraud. But everything would be okay because they'd sue, they'd get it to the Supreme Court. None of that happened. And then at the last minute, Mike Pence was the Hail Mary. He would be handed the envelopes with the electoral votes, and he'd say, no, I don't accept these, and he'd throw them away, and he'd gavel in Donald Trump as reelected. Of course, that's all fantasy. None of that is possible. But by the time we got to January 6th, millions of people believed not only that it was possible, but that it was inevitable. Well, excuse me, and it's not just, pardon me, not just that it was possible, but that essentially actually happened here in the United States in the election of 1876. Right. Uh, 
you had uh, you had Sam Tilden, the Democrat, mm -hmm. who actually got more electoral college votes and won the popular vote, and yet. Uh, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, became president. And the reason why was because you had three states in the South and Oregon. The three states in the South were still occupied by the, by the Union Army. The Oregon was occupied by the Klan. And those four states submitting, sub, each one submitted two sets of electors to the Electoral College. One saying Tilden was the winner, one saying Hayes was the winner. And so, I mean, there's a whole bunch of hoops that got jumped through in the middle here. But the, but the bottom line was it got thrown to Congress, and Congress had the power to simply say, okay, you know, we're, we're going to accept these states, we're not going to accept those states, or, or we're going to vote this way, essentially, you know, for the Electoral College. And, I mean, I was writing about that a year before, about the election of 1876, a year before the, the election of 2020. And I don't think anybody was taking it seriously. And I, and I was saying, no, I'm, I'm hearing that this is actually the plan that, that you know, the, the, the election of, you know, which, which by the way, the, the, the reason that Hayes got in was they decided to just stab African-Americans in the back, you know, end Reconstruction. Right. Um, and that was the deal. So there, there was a historical narrative there that was not totally crazy. Right. And I, I think at that point, you have a lot of people who cannot conceive of what is going to happen next, because I think a lot of a lot of scholars, a lot of pundits, we tend to think that the next war is going to look just like the last war. I mean, if you right. look at uh, the difference between World War Two and World War One, France thought that they were going to fight Germany the same way they fought them in the Great War. Well, Germany had other ideas. And this is how these things work. The, the people who do these things, the people who seize power in these ways, they, they think about what is possible and what they can do that nobody else is thinking about. And the rest of us are going, well, it's never happened before, so it can't happen. And then when something that has never happened before happens, we, we don't think to ourselves, oh, we really missed that one. We create conspiracy theories to explain why this thing that never happened is not actually what happened. We, we fool ourselves into letting ourselves off the hook. And I think one of the things that was going on during the election, during the 2020 election, is we weren't paying attention to what these, thing, to what these people were saying and how they were positioning themselves. We didn't know exactly what was going to happen. But, I, I mean, I could tell, and I think you could tell, and a lot of people who research and write about disinformation and conspiracy theories, people could tell something was going on. And you could tell in the lead-up to January 6th, these things were not secret. They weren't hidden. They weren't using codes and ciphers. They were talking about this stuff openly. Donald Trump was inviting people to come to Washington, D.C. and crash the counting of the electoral votes. None of these things were secret. We just weren't taking them seriously because we still think that things that happen on the Internet, things that fringe people are talking about are never actually going to happen. So we don't need to amplify those things. Yeah. Well, I think in some cases we do. Well, I'm still scratching my head, uh, Mike Rothschild, over why I was able to read on Facebook and Twitter that there was going to be a hell of a fight on January 6th, yeah. that the plan was to get Mike Pence to, to not uh, certify the election, that that was the whole focus of the whole thing, that on the morning of January 6th, and we now know that the Park Police had arrested a couple of people and they had a mob coming after them. I mean, these people were already out there. Um, and for some reason... The, the Chris, Chris uh, was it Chris Miller? Mm -hmm. I, I think it is the, the guy that uh, Trump had put in charge of, of the, right. uh, uh, you know, uh, of the uh, Defense Department uh, temporarily um, was, you know, wrote this memo saying you can't help out the Capitol Police without my permission. And for four hours, he was basically ignoring, you know, please. Uh, had QAnon? I mean, was this a, a, a Trump coup attempt or a QAnon coup attempt? Where, how, how entangled are these things? What percentage of the people who showed up on January 6th were driven there by Q as opposed to driven there by Trump? Or was at that point those two movements, were they functionally indistinguishable? They were functionally indistinguishable. They were completely enmeshed at that point. You, you really could not be a QAnon believer at that point and think that the election was legitimate. Uh, and you had a lot of people there. I mean, certainly you had, you know, the Q shaman and the, the guy who busted in first wearing the Q T-shirt. So the number of people who were there who would say, I am a Q believer, I have read the drops, I read the gurus, that was probably fairly low. But the number of people who were there because the election was illegitimate, because Trump was the real president, because of the deep state, that was 100 percent. 
And those are the tenets of QAnon. These are people who maybe didn't know what Q was or didn't subscribe to it or thought it was just a bunch of boomers on their couch. That doesn't really matter. At that point, these movements are completely enmeshed together so that you have a movement of people there who are genuinely trying to break into the Capitol to, I don't know, affect a citizen's arrest on Mike Pence, to you know, publicly execute Nancy Pelosi. That's what one of these people was talking about, was shooting Nancy Pelosi in the head. These people are driven by this conspiracy ideology of we are going to remake the world as we want it to be. We do not accept the onslaught of progressivism. We do not accept the norms and the rules and the laws that have governed everything up until that point. We are going to create it anew the same way that Donald Trump said he was going to rebuild the administrative state in his own image. They're completely enmeshed. Yeah, remarkable stuff. The book is The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. The author, Mike Rothschild. Mike, just just for historical context, can you talk about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and the Russian, uh, the Tsar's intelligence service in, in the early, uh, the first decade or two of the, of the, of the 20th century, and, and, what, and how that was used to ultimately kill six million Jews in Germany? Sure. So the, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was this forged document. There's absolutely no doubt it was a forgery. We know exactly where it came from. But it became a touchstone for how wealthy Jews were perceived in the 20th century as this uh, this insider cabal that didn't let in outsiders, that you know intermarried with each other, that had strange customs and a strange language, and suddenly you know had this this domination over banking and finance, and then the entertainment industry. These tropes, you know, were around long before them. You go back to the blood libel of the 1200s, where a you know English boy was murdered, and the the local villagers thought it was this cabal of Jews that did it to drink his blood and use it in their their matzah. Now, of course, we see that in QAnon. We see the adrenochrome idea, this idea that the elites are keeping themselves alive with the adrenaline of terrified children. It's just another version of the blood libel. And then the, the tenets of QAnon are really a repackaging of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, of one of the other foundational documents of anti-Semitism, the Satan pamphlet of the 1830s, which posited that Nathan Rothschild, uh, I'm not a member of the Rothschild banking family, just, uh, just to get that out of the way also. <laughs> for the record. That, uh, yeah, for the record. Nobody believes me anyway. But <laughs> that, uh, that Nathan Rothschild was there at the Battle of Waterloo, and he braved a channel storm to get back to the London Stock Exchange and convince everybody that that Napoleon had won, but it was really the British had won, and he made millions and millions and millions off it. None of this stuff is real. But those documents are recirculated over and over and over again. They form the the core of Nazi propaganda leading up to the Holocaust. They form the core of uh, John Birch propaganda. You had the Protocols of the Elders of Zion reprinted in the uh, seminal conspiracy theory book, Behold a Pale Horse, which in and of itself contains a number of concepts that would later be recycled as QAnon. All of these things are just repackaged over and over and over and over again. We know where they come from. We know how they've been used. But they they are compelling to a new generation of anti-Semites who are looking for people to blame that things haven't gone their way. And wealthy Jews are always going to be a perfect scapegoat because of that outsider status, because of their their strange customs and their strange language. We are still dealing with the things that made the protocols, the Satan pamphlet, the blood libel. We're still dealing with all of those things that made those things so popular. Mike, we have 30 seconds to the break. Um, To what extent do you think uh, anti-Semitism is a driving force within QAnon and, and racism more generally? It's an enormous driver. The second ever Q drop contains a reference to George Soros. There are uh, Q drops that list nothing but Rothschild-owned central banks. I mean, never, never mind. That's not how banking works. One of the Q drops reprints a horribly anti-Semitic cartoon that was put on 4chan. Th- this stuff is is everywhere. This idea that uh, Barack Obama is an outsider. They refer to him as Hussein. Racism, anti-Semitism. These are cornerstones of the QAnon movement. Wow. Uh, Mike Rothschild is with us. The book is The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. It's positively compelling, brilliant book. 
Conversations with Great Minds. The book is The Storm is Upon Us. The author, Mike Rothschild. Mike, to what extent, we're, the, the, the hot thing right now is people showing up at school board meetings, uh, screaming obscenities, and we know where you live, uh, people threatening yeah. the lives of election officials, volunteers. My mom used to do this. When I was seven years old, I used to go to the local elementary school and stand, you know, sit next door to my mom while she checked in voters, right? I mean, it's just civic duty, right? And, 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 and now, you know, showing up at hospitals, you know, and, and, and harassing employees and claiming that there's, you know, there's nobody in that hospital, the parking lot's empty, you know. All this weird stuff that is becoming, in many cases, frighteningly violent. What is the relationship between that and QAnon? So all of this really started during the pandemic. You, you had this sudden event that changed everything. It sent everybody inside. Our understanding of the virus was changing day by day. Events like that are petri dishes for conspiracy theories, especially when you involve health and health freedom and the idea of forced testing and masks and things like that. There are always going to be people who, who think that they are above the rules, that they are special, that they don't need to do the things that the rest of us are doing, that they're awake. So during the pandemic, these worlds all came together on social media. So people who were not uh, right-wing people, people who were not Trump supporters or Q people, would go online because they had questions about 5G Internet and the pandemic, Bill Gates, uh, vaccines, whether it was a Chinese bioweapon, all of these questions that people didn't have answers to. So they would go online, they would look for like-minded communities of people who are talking about the same thing because they have no real-life outlet to talk about this and to have their friends or colleagues say, eh, yeah, that's probably nothing, don't worry about it, you know, let's go get a beer. None of that was happening during the lockdown. So people went online and you would find the anti-5G Facebook group and you'd say, oh, that looks interesting, I, I have some questions about that. You'd join that. The algorithm then knows, oh, you, you are against 5G, maybe you're also against Bill Gates. It gives you a Bill Gates Facebook group to join. Then it says, oh, maybe you're uh, anti-vaccine. And it gives you an anti-vaccine group. And then it gives you a Great Awakening group. And that's QAnon. So people who consider themselves progressive, Bernie Sanders voters in a lot of cases, were suddenly getting radicalized into QAnon through these health freedom conspiracy theories, the forced vaccination, the big pharma conspiracy, all that stuff. Then in the summer of 2020, they start marching. They start marching to save the children. And they're doing that because Q promoters have started to drop the branding of QAnon because it's getting banned on social media. So they find something they can co-opt that is not going to be banned and that you can't reasonably be against. Most people do not want children to be trafficked. That's not an unreasonable thing. So these people go and they start marching. And all of these worlds combine in these protests that seem very amorphous, very listless. People are just sort of marching around and they're just angry. They're angry about lockdown. Well, this was Pizzagate too, was it, was it not? It's, it's absolutely it's Pizzagate. That, that is 100% a part of it. So all of these people have suddenly become uh, enmeshed in this very amorphous conspiracy movement. Then the election happens. And now these people are completely primed to think that the election was stolen. And then we, we get into the Biden administration, and suddenly these people realize that QAnon is, is not there anymore. There's no new Q drops. They need to channel this into something else. And you start to see a, a, a real groundswell in QAnon of local action. Uh, Mike Flynn has this statement where he says, local action has a national impact. So people start to go to these places that they feel like are influencing what's going on in their communities as part of the pandemic. So they, they see the mask mandates, they see vaccine mandates, they, school, they, they see schools being closed, and they want to fight against that. And they figure out that the way to do that is to show up at these meetings and be really loud, get, go viral for your bizarre rants, and suddenly you can be at a school board meeting in some rural county and your, your Facebook video of you ranting about George Soros and vaccines gets 2 million views. And then suddenly people start talking to you about running for office. And these elections, as you know, are very low turnout. Most people are not interested in them. Most people don't really know who's on their school board or their city council. We're too focused on national politics to know what's going on in our community. So these elections are very winnable. They're low turnout. They don't cost a lot of money. If you have name recognition, you can win. Well, what gets you name recognition in a community of energized conservatives, but a viral video of you screaming about conspiracy theories? Hmm. So all of this stuff is interlinked. It's all enmeshed. It all feeds off each other. 
Wow. Uh, we have about two minutes left, Mike. Where did, where did Q go? You said Q stopped Q dropping. Who was Q and where did Q go? Well, the, the prevailing theory among most uh, disinformation journalists is that the person making the drops at the end of Q was this guy, Ron Watkins. And this is a name you've probably seen thrown around. Uh, he was the one of the stars of the HBO documentary. He is the son of the uh, pig farmer who lived in the Philippines. I mean, he's not a pig farmer. He sold the farm. He doesn't even live there anymore. I think he lives in Sacramento. But this guy is the, it really is the prime suspect for having made the Q drops. Well, he stopped making them in December, and he started tweeting out under his own name. And he, he refashioned himself as an expert on election fraud because he read the manual for a Dominion voting machine. So he is now relentlessly tweeting exactly how these Dominion voting machines are vulnerable, how their votes can be switched, how they're hooked up to the Internet. None of that stuff is true. He has no idea what he's talking about. But in those desperate weeks after Trump lost the election, people are looking for anything that explains to them what really happened. So Ron Watkins becomes a new media star. He's getting retweeted by Donald Trump. He's getting interviewed live on OAN. He is, he is presenting himself as somebody who knows how this stuff works. So he's now a right-wing celebrity. He doesn't need you anymore. He's getting retweeted by the president. He's getting mentioned in Sidney Powell's lawsuits. He's left that behind. He's, he's moved away from the small town, and he's in the big city. Once you're in the big city, you don't need the small town anymore. So that's really, at least for me, where I think Q is gone and, and why I don't think there will be any more Q drops. The person behind them does not need to be anonymous anymore. There's no value in that anymore. Has Dominion gone after him? I mean, they're suing a bunch of people. They're suing a bunch of people. He is not, uh, as far as I know, in any direct legal jeopardy, but I I think the the ball is still very much in their court as to what they're going to do about him. Right. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Mike, you wrote a brilliant book, and thank you so much for sharing sharing it with us. Uh, the storm is upon us. How QAnon became a movement, cult, and conspiracy theory of everything. Mike Rothschild. Mike, thank you again. Thank you. Great talking with you. We'll be back. Same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag your it, and be good to yourself and the people around you. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.